0: Hi, my name is Paul Caroli, and I host a podcast called Changing Denver. It's a monthly show about our city's physical spaces, how we make them, and how they make us. But it's so much more than that. It's the conversations, ideas, and stories that define Denver's perpetual state of flux. Find more from our team at changingdenver.com and join the conversation on Twitter, at Changing Denver. Denver's changing. We can help.
1: You have all made it to the damn man. You have all made it, made it, Welcome from the X Access. It's John of Trades with your host, John X.
0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades Podcast, episode 103. your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And on this week's show, man, this was an interesting chat. is Jim Gunderson. He is the creator of Gunderfish, and to check them out, go to Gunderfish.com. And this venture that he's doing is really an outgrowth of, I'd call it a lifetime of work in artificial intelligence and robotics. Now, he's married it in an interesting concept with content generation. Now, what do I mean by that? So, you're a blogger, you're on Twitter, you're on Facebook, and let's say you have client work, as I do for Deaf Communications, By the way, this podcast is produced by Deaf Communications. Check us out on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. But let's say you do that, and in my case, this is not a long walk. Would it be helpful if you had some sort of artificial intelligence assistant that found interesting articles for you, brought them back to you, and potentially generated content that you could just then flip for either clients or for your own purposes or for promotion or whatever. And that's really at the heart of what he's doing. How do we automate systems that take a large portion of our day? And how do we make them work for us? Now, the interesting thing that came about as a result of this, and I brought this up, I met Jim a couple of weeks ago, and I brought it up then and I brought it up on this week's show. It's what are the implications for our life of work I mean, we saw automation take out most of the factory jobs that existed in the early part of this century. You get some robots in, it's much cheaper, it's much more efficient. Then further to this point, we saw this happen in the service industry. Think about travel agents. Being a travel agent used to be, I think, a pretty good job. You know, you'd help people plan their travel, you'd call people, you'd get deals. That's almost entirely done on the Internet now. You just type in the parameters and you get all these options for trips that you could potentially take. So the point I'm getting at is, as we seem to erode more and more of our economy, what does that mean for the future of humanity, the future of work, and the future of our society? And we spend a lot of time on this episode talking about artificial intelligence and the implications for us as a species. We go deep on that. And for that reason alone, this episode is fascinating. I think you'll love it. You're already listening to the intro, so presumably you're bought in. But if you're not by now... Get ready because Jim is just very thoughtful, very perceptive. He's Dr. Jim Gunderson. I mean, for God's sakes, I didn't even introduce him correctly. He's got a PhD. His wife has a PhD. Again, check them out on gunderfish.com. And you know what? This is a great episode A great philosophical chat about artificial intelligence, about how our brain works, about how math works, about the limitations of math. It's a very high level, very intelligent, very philosophical conversation. And you know what? I'm not even going to plug anything. So let's just get to this week's episode. It's 103. Jim Gunderson, and it starts right now.
1: (laughs) Uh, under the right circumstances, it does. In fact, <laughs> it's got one sound on there that is literally a...
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be for Snapchat notifications. I honestly <laughs> don't know what it is is
1: hooked up to. It right. just every once in a while goes off. And, you know, the phones are getting so uh, volitional. <laughs> right. I uh, I suddenly discovered about a week ago that my phone was now... Sending me a little sound notification when it successfully sent an email. Okay. So I push the so- send button. Yeah. And it used to be, you know, you push the send button, forget it. Now I push the send button and it goes <laughs> when it says successfully sent.
0: Well, I know on the iPhone it goes whoosh. Whoosh is good. So you know, it, and I like that because it almost makes me feel like I'm at like a drive-up bank. And <laughs> they've got the vacuum yeah. tube. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the email is. If we're if we're to believe, uh who was that Senator Ted Stevens? That the internet is a series of tubes. Tubes. So it makes me feel like my I someone rolled in my email <laughs> and put it in a yeah, little, little thing and shot it out, and it's now floating off,
1: getting redirected. Yeah, in the big corners. tube. Yeah. yeah. So,
0: <laughs> um as a technology guy, what kind of phone do you use? I have an Android. I have okay. A Droid Max. I've Turbo always, maybe. Okay. Droid Max, Droid Turbo, yeah, Droid Super. Who knows? I've always had an iPhone, but. The people I know who are more tech savvy tend to like the droid more. Why is that? I don't can't speak for everybody. I like the sound it makes
1: when you power it up.
0: Oh, that's uh, a good sound, yeah. Um,
1: now I think the um, iPhones, the 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 entire Apple line, I mean, you know, as a design concept, is really focused on hiding the tech, right? Right. I mean, that's why you get one is you don't have to worry about that stuff. But I think most people who are in technology tend to look at it and say, no, I, I mean, that's what I like is the tech side of things. Don't hide that from me.
0: Right. Show me show me the architecture a little bit behind yeah. it. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it, I mean, is it more customizable too?
1: I don't think so. I think ultimately, they're okay. probably equally customizable. You've got the advantage that there's no oversight cool. structure, right? <laughs> you can't get an iOS app until it's been verified, you know, checked out, made sure that it's all going to fit in.
0: Right, by the Gestapo.
1: <laughs> well, by, by Apple, because they've got a very tight, I mean, you remember the bad old days when every time you installed a new piece of software, it would drop a new DLL into your system. Right. And it would ruin half the stuff that was running. Yeah. You'd get conflicts, it would replace something that had a specialization in it, and now your other program would break. <laughs> and that is really frustrating. Yeah. So having something that can say, okay, look, we're making sure that it's not going to break anything that's there. The Google side of things, Android side of things, it's the wild, wild west, right? <laughs> sure. I mean, anybody can put something up onto the Google Play Store, and it can do anything. <laughs> I mean, you have to say, here's the list of permissions that I'm going to need in order to run but most people look at that and say oh yeah sure whatever I want this thing I probably have that yeah exactly and so it's 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 much more as a result you get a lot more stuff out there that is niche oriented you mm. get a lot more stuff out of there that is kind of more quickly evolving because the cycle time from right. idea to have it on the play store is so much shorter okay of course it also means you end up with things like hummingbad <laughs> I don't know what that is hummingbad is a um malware package oh. that has infected various reports say between 11 million and 26 million android devices yikes uh, about 200 and some thousand of them in the u.s most of them are in china and india but basically somebody put this up on on the play store and you download it thinking you're getting a great game right. and it says oh and i need all these permissions to run the games so you say sure and it can literally rewrite your operating system it can rewrite everything it can set you up to while you're not doing anything go out and hit links and post ad revenue and do all that kind of stuff. (laughs) So, and unfortunately it's deep enough in there that the, right now, the only sure way to get rid of it is to basically do a
0: factory reset on your phone. Wow. Well, the reason I ask you about this, I mean, we're not here to talk about phones, but uh, sitting here with Jim Gunderson, the CEO. Uh, I'm the growth director and cognitive systems architect. You wrote that title yourself, didn't you? (laughs) Well played. I went to. I worked for a company that offered me my like I could be whatever title I wanted. So right. I chose Olympic gold medalist. So as it turns out, though, they were lying. They they didn't let me put that on business cards. Uh, I seem to remember somebody at Apple because Apple originally had that. Yeah. And they
1: went with um, Galactic Coordinator. Yes,
0: that's epic. <laughs> so you are at Gunderfish, a company you founded, though, right? Correct. Okay. And so tell me a little bit about what Gunderfish does. And before you do, I'll just set this up a little bit. We met through a mutual contact a couple of weeks ago, Mm -hmm. and you wanted to ask me as someone who creates content for both myself via this podcast, uh, various blog projects that I do, and for my clients, and you were telling me about how you you're working to develop something that could help people like me. So is, is that a fair way to set it up? Yeah, I think that's a very good way. Uh, we started Gunderfish
1: at the beginning of this year. Um, we had been running – we started ages ago a robotics company doing artificially intelligent mobile robots for the security industry. Right. And brought that to the point where it, it basically became a manufacturing company and of course our background is more on the technology side that's my sure. wife and myself my my co-founder
0: and you're both PhDs right absolutely fantastic
1: yeah. yeah she did hers in systems engineering from university of virginia and i did mine in computer science with a focus on artificial intelligence okay so we basically looked at at putting brains on the robots which was a Really challenging problem, I can only imagine, uh, and then we said okay let's let's start the next company. We started looking at applications for artificial intelligence in in more of a general business domain, doing predictive analytics, doing data analysis, big data, and one of the things that that we ended up working on for ourselves was content generation how How do you put content together? Um, it's a really challenging problem on a psychological side, because ultimately, you know, we've all been in that situation where you suddenly go, did that just come out of my mouth? (laughs) Right, right. And when you think about how we produce what we say, we really don't know how we produce what we say. Uh, No, the deeper you get into it, you go, wait a minute, how does this even work? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you, we know what areas of the brain are associated with, you know, both understanding and generating language. Uh, one of my wife's undergraduate degrees is in biology, and she focused a lot on neurology and neuroanatomy and the rest of that. But we don't really know where it comes from. It's just sort of things pop up, and yeah. you have a, you ideally have an, inhi- an inhibitor. Option. You can say no, no, don't say that. Yeah, right. And sometimes that slips, and and totally inappropriate things come out. Sometimes the program fails, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, and and you know there are all sorts of mechanisms in there that that control that. But we really don't know how it is that if you think, uh, you know, if someone were to ask you a question, you know, what happened on your drive to work, you don't like diagram a sentence and come up with a topic yeah. and do all of this stuff. Not, at least not on any kind of a conscious level. Yeah, it's just sentences pop up structures pop up which you then express
0: yeah in which the other person then receives and interprets and and <laughs> says and hopefully you gain some shared understanding
1: right exactly and 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 are misunderstandings both ways you know we look at it that you've got some kind of a model in your head and you're trying to describe that model so they build the same model in their head <laughs> right and of course you know that the words you produced match the model you're trying to create. But you don't know how many other possible models there are that those would also fit with, which leads to a lot of misunderstandings.
0: Yeah, it's funny to hear you say that, because one of the things I'm struck by is I wrote my master's thesis on, it's called Constitutive Rhetoric. And basically, uh, it, it says that any new text that comes about, whether that's an album, a political speech, a movie does not play to an audience that already exists. It creates its own audience.
1: Nice.
0: And so I argue that intent can – it can tell you some interesting things but is ultimately irrelevant mm-hmm. because once something gets into the world, it no longer belongs to you. It belongs to everyone and what the way they apply it, the way they assign meaning to it, the way that they – Interpret whatever it is that you've created. They can look at your intent and go, "Yeah, okay, I get that," but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> that, that's sort of a footnote right. to my overall understanding, and that to me is almost what you're describing as what happens just in in day to day conversation. I think absolutely, totally. I love that as
1: a concept. I mean, it's... <laughs> and then you also not only get the individual side of things, but then you also get kind of the social construct of what the meaning is. Yeah, when you look at at words and statements that. You know, this is probably appropriate given the election cycle we're going into. (laughs) The intent that was put down didn't matter. Right. And the interpretation changes over time. Something that was interpreted as meaning X, you know, 100 years ago. Yeah. That exact same thing has mutated. Society has changed the, the meaning of it as well as the intent. Right. Um, which makes it really challenging when you think about how am I going to craft something that will preserve its meaning across yeah. generations?
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, do we want it to? And is there, d- is there a point to doing that? Mm-hmm. Do we need something to endure for that long? And in some cases, yes. Some cases, maybe not. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we've got an
1: ephemeral content, you know. Sure. You know, twitter and and Snapchat and all of these in many ways, focus exactly on that ephemeral nature yeah. it 's going to be there for a while, but it 's not permanent right you don 't have to worry about it being brought up ten years from now well all right you do but uh, <laughs> uh, but the 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 intent is no, you can just pop out stream of consciousness kind of stuff and yeah. get messages out without worrying about it, as opposed to you know a classic novel where Much of what's put down in that document is there to craft the context in which the message is being presented Mm. so that hopefully that context and the message are preserved across time, across generations.
0: Yeah, Uh, it's an interesting point. And, you know, I think about something like uh, the movie It's a Wonderful Life, Mm -hmm. right, which when it was made, it, it was decently received, but ultimately sort of cast aside, And it wasn't until the networks uh, bought it for like pennies on the dollar and could air it at all hours of the day. There were no rights associated with it that it became a classic. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the intent of making that movie, I don't know if the filmmakers intended to make a classic that endured every holiday season, but that's what they created in a lot of ways, almost accidentally through no intent of their own.
1: Yeah, and, and I think also one of the things to look at is, especially with something like a movie like It's a Wonderful Life, is at the time that it was presented, it was within its own context. Yeah. And so the meaning was what may not have been brought as far forward. But then you move into, you know, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and now the context in which that movie's being seen is different. Yeah. And so
0: it is a much stronger statement about what it's trying to make. Okay. So, yeah, and and your point is well taken. What I'm curious about is understanding this. How does that inform, and we're getting to intent here, which is sort of uh, unintentionally ironic, but how does that inform what you're trying to do here with Gunderfish? Of course, you know, we're a business, so our intent is, sure, to run a
1: business. <laughs> but at the same time, we've got an underlying model that says there are amazing capabilities associated with computing power and the developments in in how to control those computer systems the software side of things okay that can be really really beneficial for not only businesses but for people mm we can come to rely on these as almost helper systems, assistance systems that can take care of a lot of the drudgery, take care of a lot of the the stuff that we don't wanna deal with. Or alternatively, it could go the other way um, <laughs> you know it's 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 power it's it's sure it's, it's fire and fire can warm your your house or it can burn your house down <laughs> right but it's fire's not going away, and probably neither is artificial intelligence <laughs>
0: <laughs> right that's I've never heard those juxtaposed with each other, but uh I think that's apt yeah I and mean, there was a
1: recent study uh maybe a year and a half two years ago from Oxford University where they looked at at the job markets employment markets, and identified what jobs what tasks were most susceptible to being automated to being Yeah, have the people pulled out and have machines put in there and it's a very scary list originally you tend to think of robots and manufacturing and you know the assembly line kind of thing and that's an obvious one but machines now are very capable at manipulating information in a cognitively appropriate manner (laughs) okay um not just you know blind, do this, do that, do the other, but actually, what's the most appropriate thing to do at this point? And that means that a lot of information jobs are now becoming automatable.
0: Right. I mean, you're you're talking about things like almost travel agents. Travel agents are a classic, right? I right. Mean, those are the people who compounded
1: the knowledge and they had the relationships and they had You know everything necessary to put this together for you right now you go to one of the travel sites and you can push a button and say i want to go to this location and i want to have this kind of an experience (laughs) and boom everything gets done and no human has ever looked at it (laughs) until it's presented to you and you either say yeah i like that or i want to tweak something
0: right you as the end user but but no one has assembled that package for you Uh, it's it's all done uh in an automated way exactly Exactly. And now we're starting to see, you know, the
1: threat to all those all those Uber drivers and the cab drivers and the long haul truckers right. as automated self-driving vehicles come out. Um, you know, is there going to be a position for a cab driver right. in the next 20 years?
0: You know, I, and this is kind of a non sequitur and I don't want to get too far off topic, but I keep seeing more and more about driverless cars mm-hmm. working in this industry Do you think that is close? And do you think that will be something that becomes ubiquitous? I think it is close. I think it's very close. I think it will become ubiquitous
1: for a couple of reasons. I don't think that human-driven cars are going to go away anytime soon, so it'll be a shared situation. But – you know, you can look at Google. Um, their their car, uh, Volvo, is running a uh, system right now in in Sweden where they're using them on the streets. Tesla has installed the their self driving their auto driving mode, mm. um, which, you know, with all of these, there's the risk. Yeah. yeah. Um, in fact, I guess Tesla last week somebody in self driving mode was in an accident and they and they died. Oh. Um, you know, it's the first fatality. The immediate response is, of course, you know, well, the software was wrong and blah, blah, blah. Right, but yeah. the reality is when you're out on the road with a bunch of, you know, multi-ton slabs of metal hurtling <laughs> around, it doesn't matter how good you are. You can always get nailed. And yeah. the same thing will happen to the self-driving vehicles. But I think it's going to become – a much more normal part. I mean, Uber apparently is working on a project right now in conjunction with one of the car manufacturers to actually design an Uber vehicle that is a self-driving vehicle. Hmm. So in the future, if this goes through, you know, you punch in, pull up your Uber app, and you punch in your address, and something will drive up with nobody in it, and the back door will hop, mm-hmm. pop open. You hop in, and it takes you where you're going, and you've never never interact with a person in the entire process. Wow, that sounds intense. It'll be a lot of fun. You can get some work done. You can, you know, keep. I mean, it's like a cab. You don't have to stop drinking. You know, <laughs> well, and that's of course one of the things that Uber and and all the ca- traditional cab companies, everybody else. I mean, Lyft as well. That's something that they encourage because you know it's much safer to have somebody who's not been at the bar for the last two hours right. driving the vehicle.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, do you think? And this is my last point about this particular topic. I mean, will this be? If you put a timeline on it, because it strikes me as if we have some autonomous cars and we have some driven by humans, that strikes me as the most disastrous mix, whereas uh, maybe not more disastrous than we have now because we have plenty of auto fatalities. But is there a point where automated cars take over and does that happen where, where there's more of those than there are people driving themselves? Does that happen in the next five years, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years?
1: I don't think it's going to happen the next five or ten years. Um, this is kind of an installed base problem. I mean, yeah. you're not going to convince 50 people, 50% people, fifty of the people to sell their cars in the next five years and, and replace <laughs> them with self-driving cars. So I think it's longer term than that. And, and let's face it, there are a, a lot of people who have very, very good reasons for – driving themselves they enjoy driving i mean i love to drive I, oh sure I, you know hop in the car and and I, if i've got a good excuse i'm i'm happy to go somewhere
0: yeah and i blast the tunes exactly windows down music loud yeah going yeah. for a drive is great
1: windows down air conditioning on and you know, the whole <laughs> nine yards um so there's that cultural component cars are not just a mechanism from getting from point a to point b uh, if they were, everybody would be driving, you know, Yugos or something like or that. Or smart cars. Right. Um, I mean, I'll admit my wife went out and, and we got a, uh, a Fiat 500. Nice. You know, nice little car, perfect for bombing around in the city. Sure. Um, and it's, it's okay. I mean, it's got good sound in it. They, they put in good speakers. But sure. ultimately, it's more about transport than yeah. it is about luxury. For the people who are really focused on just transportation – I think going to an automated driving system is a big win. It's a lot cheaper than hiring a chauffeur. Uh, certainly. And, and that really becomes kind of the defining factor is replacing very expensive human with inexpensive automation.
0: Right. I, I think that's a good point. And it segues nicely into one of the other applications that you're looking into is potentially generating content. I, and i wouldn't call it necessarily absent human input but either in addition to or with or it, uh, how's the best way to understand what it is you're trying to achieve i think that
1: for a lot of and and right now we're focusing primarily i mean we're not we're not trying to make an electronic novelist <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> right you know we're not we're not going to well, all right, maybe Tom Clancy, but um <laughs> the the goal is to produce something that can in fact craft a set of statements that convey meaning okay. to a person who's just got the set of statements to work from. So that's an amazingly complex task. Certainly. There have been systems out there that kind of do interaction um certainly there are chatbots out there uh Watson um, right. is doing interesting conversations with people on on commercials anyway
0: right even that old like uh goofy microsoft paperclip
1: the paperclip <laughs> right. yeah yeah but what tends to happen is much of the much of what comes out is is crafted by humans and the system kind of selects between it Mm. When you—that's on the paperclip side. Sure. Oh, you can go back to ooh, back in the 1960s. There was a program called Eliza, which was text-based. You know, in fact, it was teletype-based. <laughs> uh, and you know, you would type in a statement, and it would look at that statement and respond with something, and that might encourage you to say something else. Uh, it primarily relied on keywords and text substitution. So it had a bunch of of framework questions and then based on a keyword in what you said, it would pull that out and drop it in there. Sometimes it was ridiculously inappropriate (laughs) because there was no understanding. Sure. And, And there was no intentionality. Right. In the sense of I'm trying to achieve something with this communication. I'm trying to reach a goal. That's evolved dramatically over the last 20 years. In terms of having systems that are smart enough to say, well, this is where I want to end up, Mm -hmm. whether that's in a physical space with a self-driving car or it's in a conceptual space with some sort of a conversation engine. This is where I'm starting. This is where I want to end up. How can I move this locus from point A to point B? With cars, it's really challenging because they're in a complex environment with lots of other traffic. There are all sorts of regulations and rules. <laughs> you need tons of sensory data, so they have laser scanners and radar and infrared and all this stuff to be able to say, okay, I can navigate, honestly, the ability for them to figure out how to get from point A to point B has been around for 30, 40 years. I mean, trip planning software has been there for forever. Yeah. The problem was actually implementing that in a, in the environment and in a way that that worked with all the uncertainty and all the dynamic behavior and everything else that's going on. With a text conversational system, you can think of it much the same way. I mean, I need to get from from, you know, first in Broadway to, to, you know, Kipling, how, what's the best route to get there? Well, we can probably lay out that best route, but now we actually have to craft the words that are going to move the understanding across that route. Mm-hmm. And with driving, we actually kind of know how to do that. I mean, you know, you can do a driving manual that will talk about lane changes and the rest of that. With generating content, we really don't know how it gets generated in the first place, Mm -hmm. and so it's much harder to put it into software. There's a kind of the old statement that if you don't know
0: how to do something, you can't get a computer to do it (laughs) because you can't
1: build the program for it.
0: (laughs) I've I've never heard that before. That's actually maybe I have, but that's incredibly profound. It's a it's a yeah, it's an interesting you know. I mean,
1: there are researchers, philosophers that look at at what how our brains work. Uh, one of them is is a proponent of what he calls the uh, tacit dimension, and the tacit dimension is all that stuff that happens in the back of your head that you can 't access with your conscious mind right that you rely on to get things done, so you know the sense of feeling, the sense of taste, what things actually smell like i mean if you 've ever tried to describe a <laughs> smell in words, it can be you you' you're you 're really kind of locked out of what that is. That tacit dimension is part of what we believe is used to generate speech or generate language. And we can't get at it. I mean, you can't think about the things that are pre-verbal or non-verbal because
0: Mm. you can only think about them if you have words. (laughs) And if they're non-verbal, you don't have any words. And and you end up just – Describing a smell is almost entirely analogy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, so. it's kind of like yeah, or it's it's tagging it
1: to a reference of another smell, which doesn't really say anything because you don't know how the other person's sensory system yeah. interprets that.
0: No, that's a good point. Okay,
1: um, it's all you know. We're back to the
0: how do you describe red, right? Yeah, what is what is red, and then you, yeah, you describe things that are red. But yeah, I mean th- those are just additional reference points. It's almost like. It's almost like you're you're trying to draw a picture as a blind man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, and that's and that's I think a very apt analogy because
1: you you just you don't have any clue what it is you're trying to describe, and you don't have the words to do it anyway. So we're working on systems that that can generate very simple content, but do it in a way that ideally is close to what a human would produce. It's kind of challenging. Right now, we're taking some shortcuts. Okay. Um, we're really working on models. Uh, right now, um, I think the Tribune um, system of papers, they have to do a lot of very routine reporting. Mm-hmm. So they have to generate news stories every time, say, a company releases an earnings report. Yeah. And thousands of companies release earnings reports every day, and it just goes on constantly. And what they used to do is they had a room full of people and the people would read the earnings report and write up a short three paragraph statement about the earnings report. You know, it met expectations. It didn't meet expectations. <laughs> right. It fell far short. Um, they're actually, they've automated that process. They are now using a software package that essentially peels apart that earnings report looking for key phrases mm-hmm. and drops it into a formulaic three paragraph whatever. With, you know, some branches and some stuff so that you can expand on interesting pieces. And they're running that instead of running a bunch of people sitting at desks doing the same kind of rote process. Sure. They read pretty much exactly the same because they took the people's general format that they use over and over again, and now they just have the computer do it. And I think that's the state of the art right now. Okay. It's… Humans have crafted structures, verbal or or linguistic structures, with the ability to replace, expand, you know, do some branching in there. Yeah. And then you fundamentally drop in replacement words. Sure. Surprisingly, if you're trying to get a very simple message across and you're trying to get it across in a way that's understandable, that works extremely well. Um, it's still challenging because you have all the complexities of making sure that the parts of speech match and, you know, all those rules that that really describe a perfect language, they don't describe a living language. So there are all the violations that you have to deal with in the rest of that <laughs> sure. um, to make it really sound not like a machine. Okay. So that's basically what we're doing right now is we're developing a mechanism that can generate short content so that a system can… Go out, find a cool news article, Mm -hmm. pull that in, extract the key information from it, which is its own challenge. (laughs) Sure. And then reformulate that into what you might hear if somebody sitting across the table from you at the restaurant said, Say, did you see that, that article about XYZ? Yeah. Let me tell you about it and summarize it in, you know, five sentences.
0: Yeah, sure. So, okay. I mean, that sounds really cool. I want to go back to a fundamental question, Okay. which is, and this, this may take us way back, but why artificial intelligence? What, what was it that got you interested in this? Because I read a little bit about your bio and, you know, working in security systems and you've talked about sort of understanding robotics and AI, but what was it that, that drew you to this? I think, That there's a, for me, an amazing fascination of how do you, how
1: do you build something that thinks? How do you make something that, that thinks on its own? And it opens up a lot of, a lot of questions in terms of what is thinking and how do you know if something's thinking and so forth and so on. So, but it's, it's really that. I don't know. Maybe it's it's the God complex of of creating <laughs> creating this entity that is its own thing, but it's your creation. You know, we're back to Frankenstein and his right. monster. You know, I grew up watching television like a lot of people did, and you know, I'd watch the the Jetsons. Sure. I love the Jetsons, right? That maid. That, yeah. that maid Rosie that would roll around and, and be capable of doing all the, you know, the drudgery, the sweeping the floors, the, the picking up the clothes, the walking the dog, but also being smart enough to have a personal relationship with the people around
0: it. And she could just ask George.
1: Oh absolutely. Yeah. 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 In fact that's her primary job. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I would say so. And I think I think that that always was a fascination for me is is it leads to all those questions about what is it that happens inside a head, whether it's a whether it's a human head with, you know, two or whatever pounds of jello floating around (laughs) inside your skull, or is it a cybernetic head that has two and a half pounds of silicon floating around inside a box. What happens in there that enables that incredibly complex and, I don't know, supportive interaction?
0: So kind of a prosaic question, if that is of interest, why branch off into this field versus studying how it happens in humans? Because presumably, you do do some studying of how it happens in humans. And I would argue that you're not necessarily trying to mirror it, but you need almost a base model to to create an understanding from which you can then work. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think it's very accurate. I mean there there were two original
1: approaches if you go back to the 1930s and the 1940s when artificial intelligence was very very you know I, I mean it hadn't even been coined as a term at that point. There were there were two kind of big camps. One camp was Really driven by the mathematical, philosophical side of things that essentially said all all of this cognition, all of this stuff that we, we think of as thinking is very rigorous. It's very mathematical. You know, we've got George Boole just came out with, with his new system of logic where you could express this in a series of equations. and And we're starting to analyze language in terms of very formal structures. Right that's what computers are good at so obviously we should just start from ground zero and build a a mathematical model of cognition okay the other camp was really much more in the you might be able to use that machine to help you explore what happens but but we don't really know what we go, goes on in our head i mean you know there's plenty of data that show that well the mathematical solution might be this and 99 people out of 100 will do this other thing So it's very clear that (laughs) they are not doing the mathematical processing. So if you're trying to mirror intelligence and the only exemplars we have of intelligent systems are living systems, Mm -hmm. then instead of doing this abstract mathematical model, you should be looking at what's happening in the brain and figuring out how you can emulate it. Okay. And that's the approach we took. We said, look, there 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 are an infinite number of ways you could design a brain. Software is great. You know, if there's one way to do it, there are an infinite number of ways to do the same thing. So there are an infinite number of ways to define an artificial intelligence, but they have to work. (laughs) Right. And the only exemplars we have right now are living systems. So let's look at what the living systems are doing with all the failings, according to the mathematicians, with all of the fallacies
0: that they believe in. But let's figure out how they're doing it, because... Right now, that's the best we've got. <laughs> right, well, you know you, the way you describe the mathematical approach, it reminds me of some of the problems I have with. There's a, a certain school of economics that indicates that people will act rationally mm-hmm. and, and go to the towards the lowest cost. I, I would say that's not always the case, and I would say that's not even frequently the case. I mean, there's so much that goes into the decision to make a purchase, Mm -hmm. and so much of it irrational, why you choose one thing, or or at least in terms of the economic model, irrational. But there there are variables that you can't account for, and that to me describes kind of the differences that you're describing in the two uh, approaches to artificial intelligence. I think you hit a key phrase when
1: you said the variables you can account for. Right. Okay. And that becomes the big differentiator. Um, mathematicians have a very limited tool set. Mm-hmm. I mean, math is, is, math is brilliant. I love math. And that's incredible. But it's also very limited because it has to operate under very, very tight constraints mm-hmm. to be valid. And that, when you start looking at complex systems, forces a set of simplifying assumptions. Well, we're not going to pay attention to this. Because we don't have the math for it. Right. And we're not going to pay attention to that because we have no way to measure it. And we're not going to pay attention to that because we just don't think it's going to apply. So we end up producing this beautifully elegant, simplified version mm-hmm. of the real-world problem. And then when the real world doesn't match that, we tell the real world it's wrong. <laughs> um, right. My, my wife was in a in a class that was modeling um, event-driven simulations. And they were discussing – modeling checkout lines at a supermarket. Okay. You know, classic optimization problem. You want to make sure nobody waits in line too long. How often do you open up a new check stand versus, you know, sure. so and so on. And they were using some software to do this modeling so they could do simulations. And she said, well, how do you model the attitude of the people in line? Hmm. And she was told, well, that has no bearing on the checkout speed, so we just ignore it. And she said – she's very direct. She said, have you actually ever gone shopping? (laughs) Because if there's somebody ahead of you, three people up in the line, and they are in a bad mood, and they start quibbling with the checkout clerk over the price of something or something else, that mood spreads. Yeah. And now the line slows down. If you can't put that into your model – then your model is really not very effective. Yeah. Certainly when we look at traffic models, we can model traffic flow beautifully, totally abstractly. But it doesn't match the real world because, you know, that person that just did a jerk merge in front of you now causes <laughs> ripples in the behavior and the decision-making processes of everybody else that just mm-hmm. was cut off. And those decisions now change and they change and they change. And yet, you know, the software that we use assumes that each little car is a little corpuscle floating in a a stream, and they're all going to move smoothly. Right. um, So the mathematical side tends to say we can produce an elegant model. It's internally consistent, but it may lose correspondence to the outside world. Okay. The biological side of things says, well, we have something that's perfectly in correspondence because it is the thing. Right. But we have no way to model it. Okay. So everything kind of fits on a spectrum between those two.
0: Wow. So, I, I mean, one of the things I'm struck by, Jim, and I was very much struck by this in our initial conversation, was, I think sometimes when you think of artificial intelligence, or you, you picture sci-fi movies, you know, you're, you're thinking of Skynet from the Terminator movies, or that Will Smith movie, AI, Mm -hmm. I I never saw it, but.
1: Or actually, uh, uh, iRobot.
0: Oh, iRobot. Yeah. Uh, who was AI? Was that? AI you?
1: was the little, I can't remember who the, oh. the great actor who played the little kid.
0: Oh, in, uh, Sixth Sense? Oh, hey, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Haley Joel Osment. Yeah. You sometimes think about that and, you know, people, it's almost like an internet meme that's in perpetuity about how the robots are going to end us all. Sure. Right? But dialing that back a little bit, I've always been struck by the humanistic approach you have to this because you're creating, at Gunderfish, you're creating this program designed to help content creators and aid and assist them. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that you're that you're describing in terms of, you know, the erosion of maybe drivers, long haul truckers, sure. cab drivers, travel agents, podcasters, con- <laughs> content providers is if you have ultimate success, you mm-hmm. may eliminate an entire sector of the economy sure. by doing that. So are those two things in opposition where you have this very humanistic side and the sort of real world, almost economic implications on people's occupations?
1: That's a really, really complex question. Uh, I'm sure. One of the things I like about about working in the environment is we get to have these conversations, (laughs) you know, sitting around the coffee table. Sure. Um, It's the economic arguments are a big concern. Obviously every time there's a new technology, there are economic repercussions. Sure. And then it tends to stabilize. Um, the economists will tell you ultimately it comes down to the production capability per capita okay. is the driver. So if you have if you can double the production capacity capability per per person, then quality of life, standard of living goes up. Right. Yes, while that happens in the case of automation, there are going to be a lot of sectors of the economy that are out of work. And those people, their quality of life is not going up right now.
0: <laughs> At least not in the short term. Exactly. And and
1: as I think it was Keene said, uh, you know, in the long term, we're all dead, right? <laughs> um, so there, there are a lot of challenges there. The other thing that's factoring in now, which makes it maybe a little bit more of a concern, is the speed, the rate of change. Yeah, It's one thing if you come up with a new invention every 50 years. Right. Because over those 50 years, you know, the printing press or the, the loom, the automated loom, yep. the cotton spinning systems, those displaced a lot of workers. But there was one of those, you know, every, you know, 50 years, every... So it might be an entire generation before that next disruptive pulse comes in. Yeah. And things can stabilize at that new level. Now we're seeing those kinds of disruptions occurring every five years, which means that you're still reeling from the last one when the next one comes in. Right. And that's a concern. Yes. In the aggregate overall, people can produce more food, more whatever, with less effort. But you haven 't had a chance to train for the new job before the job you 're training for has now been automated, and <laughs> right. all of that 's out the window and that's a that 's a very very big concern you know and that 's still on the side that says and and all these artificial intelligences are are going to be working for the good of humanity right you know there are economists that are looking at um, entirely new models of economic systems where instead of being based on the production capacity of the individual. It's rather based on the production capability of the society hmm. and how do we enable people to take care of that. I mean, you know, here in in Western Europe and 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 in the U.S., we have a massively consumer-driven economy. Yes. Basically, if you don't produce more things and sell them, our economy grinds to a halt. We don't have a choice of, of slowing down. Right, right. But at the same time, if... The company goes out there and, you know, fires all of its employees and manufactures everything using robots. Well, the robots aren't going to buy any of that product. (laughs) And the employees are, or the ex-employees don't have any cash flow, so they're not going to buy any of that product. So now we get into that negative cycle, and that's a huge issue. Um, so you see the transition from, you know, obviously, you know, countries that are primarily resourced extraction based into companies or countries that are basically manufacturing based, they're doing the added value. then you move into um, informational processing and service sector type things. As, as we go through this natural flow, we aren't sure what the next piece is, Yeah, but it's, you know, I mean, what's going to happen to all those, all those cab drivers and all those truck drivers when every, you know, every cab is a, is a, a driverless vehicle that you just summon with your cell phone and, and it, automatically debits out of your bank account and there hasn't other than you there's not been a human being in the entire transaction right or you know the robot semi pulls up to the grocery store and the robot forklifts unload all the packaging and the robot stocking units go out there and put the things on the shelves making sure now beautifully you know just in time everything's fast you never walk into a grocery store that doesn't have the item that you're looking for sitting on the shelf yeah Sounds great on that side, but all those other people that were involved in that process—what are they doing now? And they're not going to become robot repair people,
0: <laughs> no. And I mean, it's it's something I've thought about quite a bit because I deal with the media a lot, and the media it, it used to be sort of a, a viable career choice, mm-hmm. and then. With the elimination of classified advertising, which when I was a kid, the classified section used to be the biggest part of the paper. Mm -hmm. And I'd look at it and i go, why? This is the most boring part. Like, get to the sports and the comics and stuff. But that was the backbone under which all of those jobs existed. And thanks to things like Craigslist, where you don't have to buy an ad anymore. You can just put it online for free and everyone will see it. It's made things much more efficient. You're right. But that part of the economy really contracted. Yep. And I mean, you're talking about economic contraction in a very broad way. And if we keep the other word I was struck by that you used was disruption. Mm. If you think about something like tech crunch Mm -hmm. disrupt, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the very word that they used. Yes. Game changing technologies disrupt usually for the better, the, the way that we live our lives. Absolutely. And it's amazing to me to think about that. What goes into what you do, you you almost have to be looking macro, big picture, economically, if you have interest in this philosophically at all. Right. First of all, but I mean, I I'm just I'm struggling for words because I'm thinking about, you know, what do we do if the vast majority of people don't need to work? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. Like uh, you know, do we do we get all the resources that we need? where our life is not centered around our employment anymore. Yeah. And so I mean that's kind of what you're describing in terms of what is the next economic sure sure phase that we move yeah. into. And and in some ways you can look at it that
1: the current economic culture that we see over the last, you know, 150 years, maybe you could go back to the late 1400s with some of the, you know, in, innovations that occurred there. Right. is is really driven in a cash economy basis. Yes. You go to work. The only reason you go to work for many people is to get the paycheck so that you can buy the things that will enable you to go to work in (laughs) order to get the paycheck so that you can buy the things. Right. Uh, Before that cash economy, you know, it was a much simpler model. It certainly wouldn't sustain anywhere near as many people as we currently are are forced to account for. Um, but it was a model where you know cash didn't do anything. You 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 did something of value. It was either a value to yourself directly, or it was a value to somebody else. You're talking about like work in the land, basically. Sure, sure. And and you can look at the early guild structures. Um, right. And, okay. Uh, you know, as soon as you as soon as you cross the threshold, as soon as any culture crosses the th- the threshold over subsistence farming. So as soon as there's a surplus, now you have the ability for people not to be in the fields 20 hours a day in order to get enough food to eat. Right. Sure. Now you can start supporting artisans. You can start supporting scientists. You can start supporting church structures. All of these things come about because we're no, no longer in a purely subsistence model. That means that you can start creating new things and bringing those new things into the economic culture. But it doesn't necessarily have to be a cash model. I mean, for most of human history, it was a barter model. Right, sure. Um, And that worked up to a point. So if we've actually got all this stuff being produced with no humans, so, um, (laughs) you know, there's a a line, um, Dennis, I thought, um, back in like the 60s said, you know, the, the factory of the future is going to have two employees, you know, one human and one dog. (laughs) <laughs> the dog is there to prevent the human from touching anything. Right? <laughs> I'd never
0: heard that before. That's funny. Um,
1: so it's, let's assume there's all this stuff around here. Now, now how do people buy the stuff? You know, they just get, is it all just given away? You know, you walk in, you pick up whatever you want, and we've got this almost animal farm socialist... Anarchy style. Yeah. Well, not necessarily anarchy. It could be very structured and very organized. Could be, but sure. But there's no cash notion of value. You know, if you're hungry, you go grab some food because there's plenty of food. It sounds almost utopian. Right, sure. And all it takes is, you know, the robots go out there and make more solar cells so they can make more factories so they can make more robots and, you know, the the whole purpose of this is just to produce goods for people. Yeah. Now that draws Back into the question of then, now we get to the evil side of robotics and it's at what point do they say, well, why are we doing all this for these people? <laughs> I mean, all they do is come in here and take food and, and s- television sets and, <laughs> um, and then we have to make more of them. It would be a lot less expensive and a lot easier if they
0: weren't around. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, yeah. If you have a system that reasons eventually. Sure. In that model, it it may reason out the need for for us. <laughs> we did a we did a paper for the National Institute of Standards and Technology a couple of years
1: ago, and the, the we we were very liberal with our titling. Um, okay. This one this one was titled "Mom, the vacuum cleaner's chasing the dog again." <laughs> And what it explored is given the current levels of artificial intelligence and reasoning ability. Uh Let's suppose we have a vacuum cleaner. You know, you can think of one of the ones that. Like a Roomba. Exactly. Except it's smart. Okay. And it's it has a lot of things because it's a family member. It wants to work. So it wants to keep the floors clean, of course, but it also knows that it should keep, you know, shouldn't use too much power to do that because if, you know, you don't want to drive up the electricity bills and so forth and so on. And it's smart enough to see what's going on and remember things. So it notices over time that every time the dog has been out in the garden and comes into the family room, it tracks mud in. Yeah. The vacuum cleaner says, oh, great, there's mud. I can go clean it up. But then it starts saying, wow, I'm using a lot of electricity cleaning up after this dog. It would be better if I didn't have to vacuum in here so often. (laughs) So it decides to stand in the doorway. And when the dog tries to come in, it you know, makes little (laughs) jerking motions at the dog to scare the dog away. It says, hey, this is working pretty well. (laughs) So now you've got the vacuum cleaner that's chasing the dog in order to do the job that complex job of both not wasting energy and keeping the floors clean. Yeah, And then, of course, it notices that the children are sometimes messy when they come in here and eat. And it says, well, that worked on the dog. Now I'll work on, you know, let's see if it works on the people. That's the kind of thing where even today with the about amount of reasoning that we can put into a small mobile device, we can have that running. And that could be an unexpected outcome right. of simply telling a object like an autonomous vacuum cleaner, I want you to do two things. I want you to keep the house clean, but I don't want you to run up my
0: electricity bill while you do it. <laughs> wow. This is fascinating. I could do this with you all day, <laughs> but unfortunately, we're running out right. of time. So, okay, let's say, let's get back to Gunderfish. Sure. Your, your current project. Yep. Let's look down the line, and let's say you managed to achieve this very complex thing where, right. where you have a program... That can generate content that that doesn't sound robotic, right? That uh, is useful to the people who read it. The, yep. the, useful to the people who create it. What will Gunderfish look like in, say, five years or whenever you've achieved that?
1: Well, you know, I have to make enough cash so I can go down to the grocery store and buy things <laughs> like that. So that's <laughs> that's always good. I think what we what I'd like to see is an environment in which we can live a much more personalized, customized life. Okay. Um, you're, you're seeing systems now. I mean, we can all go out and turn on special alerts so that the, some of the machines out there will, will grab news articles, get published and drop them in our e- email box saying, here are some things that match your criteria. Okay. I'd really love to have one of those that could also look at those and say, and these three are bogus and it's going to be a waste of your time to even look at them because they're just puff pieces. Yeah. This one really matches what you're interested in. And also that next step of saying, oh, and you know, you never created an alert for this. But based on the alerts you have created, this is probably something you might be interested in. Let me pull that in and suggest, mm-hmm. you know,
0: and then you give me a rating and tell me, you know. Because that's important to me because I think about, are you a big music fan? I uh, Yes, mostly jazz. Okay. When you think about going to a record store or a music store... The folks who work there can point you in directions that you wouldn't have necessarily found on your own. Mm-hmm. And I compare that to something like Pandora, sure. which will feed me a never-ending stream of stuff that I already like, yep. which is fun to do from time to time. But if you have any curiosity about you, you, yep. you, you want someone who can almost guide you to open you up to new things. Yep. Is that the component Ab- that you're sort of describing? Absolutely. I mean, that
1: exploratory thing that says, look, there's, there's a hint of a pattern here. Let's yeah. see if there's really here. Let's do an experiment. Let's go out and find this, you know, Nora Jones piece and drop it into the mix and see if they like it. We yeah. actually built a system several years ago called a personal DJ that would rank. You had one control on it. You could say no.
0: <laughs> that was it.
1: It was it was building your playlist. You never did anything. And the eventual target on that was to actually analyze the music and then go out and find new music And you could give it your credit card, and it could go down and download a 99-cent tune and drop it in there and say, what about this one? Much like – that's the function at the record store or on a radio station, assuming it's not a completely pre-programmed radio station. Right, right. Go out and find something new and present it to you so that you can say, wow, I like that. I need to go find more by that artist or more in that genre.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't have found that on my own. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. No, that's a big thing. Um,
1: So I think that's that's a big thing because we're – Many, many people are are just totally overloaded. There's too much stuff going on. There's too much stuff to deal with. And there's a a concept called choice fatigue. Choice fatigue basically says it takes energy to make a choice. And if you have too many choices, it takes too much energy and you just can't pick anything. So maybe that's something that could get offloaded to say, here, here are some things to look at. Your only choice is to say, no, I didn't like that. And that's easy for people to say. I mean, that that one's an easy one. No, I don't like it. And yet still have that ability to not sort of spiral in narrower and narrower and narrower, but instead continue to do that
0: expansion oh, okay. of taste and and knowledge and information. That would be cool. I, I mean, what you're describing sounds like why I prefer just surfing through the cable channels mm-hmm. than actually having to select something on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Because the intent of that sure. it almost feels like locked in, and it makes me feel like I'm making an obligation to it. Whereas if it's on... And I just, I have a few choices and I go, ah, you know what? I'm going to watch Rounders again, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. I I can check into this little poker movie for a little while and I don't care. I would never have, I wouldn't ever say, oh, I should go
1: watch that again. Yeah. But since it's there, it reminds me and that then inspires the next piece and inspires the next piece. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think that's where we want to end up is having systems that are intelligent enough and knowledgeable enough to be able to do that outreach and say mm-hmm. let's find something new and pull it in and that can be you know on a news feed it can be on a music feed it can be on anything but it really requires being able to understand to build a model of what's going inside its person's head wow to say
0: i know what will work for you <laughs> wow Well, I mean, that's a lofty goal. And when you, when, when you started this by telling me, you know, gotta get money, gotta go to the grocery store, I'm like, you're not the kind of guy. I'm never gonna buy that. Like, (laughs) yeah, that's sort of a precondition of modern living. Sure. But, uh, I'm like, no, he's gotta have some loftier purpose behind that. And I think you articulated it nicely. So. Okay, uh, here's the point in the show where, uh, we do some plugs. Where can people find you? Uh, before you say anything, I just like to point people to your LinkedIn page. Sure. Absolutely. Because you're very prolific there. And there's there's interesting stuff all the time. So, uh I'll start there. What else? LinkedIn, of course our website,
1: um gunderfish.com. So, it's fairly easy to remember and it's fairly short, which was good. Yeah, it um, came about and uh, we we were putting together a company and needed something in a hurry and my wife's maiden name was Fisher and I'm a Gunderson, so we just chopped it up and put it together for that. So that works. There, I also run a scoop it, a curated, uh, scoop it, scoop it, page out there where I put in interesting stuff about AI. And, uh, yeah. And other than that, I just hang around a lot. So I'm <laughs> easy to find.
0: So yeah, see you at, uh, at some of the various coffee shops. I met you at St. Mark's. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Which, which what you said lot.
0: was right near your old office. Uh,
1: yeah, we used to have a carriage house. We were building robots in a 1800s carriage house in the back <laughs> of a building, two blocks from St. Mark's. So every time we'd get frustrated and say, we need to figure out what to do next. It was like, okay, walk away from the robot, <laughs> go sit down, have some coffee, kick things around, let the ideas bubble, and then go back to work. I yeah, like that place. Perfect. That's good.
0: All right. Well, I'll tell you what, Jim. This was enormously entertaining and super illuminating for me. So appreciate your time, your expertise, and the level of care with which you approach your work. Well, thank you. And I thank you for this I mean, it's a great opportunity. As you
1: can tell, I like to talk about this stuff, but it's also nice. You, you do a really good job eliciting.
0: Oh, thank you. <laughs> so,
1: so, I mean, then that's, that's a serious skill.
0: Oh, well, I appreciate that. That's, uh, that's meaningful to me. So, uh, continued success to you, Jim. Thanks. And that wraps up episode 103 of the John of All Trades podcast. Thank you to Jim Gunderson for bringing the insight and bringing the knowledge. This was just an enormously illuminating chat. I loved it. I adored it. And Jim is just a great guy. I can literally talk to him all day about this. So I hope you got a little snapshot into what that's like. Our sponsor of this episode is 4 Degrees, number 4, D-E-G-R-E. ES. Four Degrees will provide everything you need if you're running an online campaign. Speaking of which, maybe him and Jim should meet. They will identify the platforms. They will identify the people who most need to hear your message. And you know what? They can help you craft the message as well. So, visit them on the web. The number four, D-E-G-R-E E-S. As I said in the intro, this is a production of Deaf Communications. Deft on the web is D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. Check us out on social media. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, All at J-O-A-T pod. Also check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. Ratings, reviews, subscriptions, all those things are helpful to me. So if you take a few minutes and do them, I'd very much appreciate it. I suspect we'll be back here next week. I'm actually recording this well in advance, so I don't know what the future holds. But tune in, check out Facebook. Episode previews go up on Monday, and then new episodes drop on Wednesday. So until I see you back here again, say goodnight, Thursday.